We're in the book of Zechariah, easy to find. Next to the last book in your Old Testament, there just beside Malachi. We're in the 12th chapter of this wonderful book of Zechariah. It's an amazing book. The old prophet of God just hit the nail on the head every time. And uh, what a great prophecy, talking about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And uh, we'll be looking at um, Jerusalem and some of the things about the city of Jerusalem tonight. And um, I'm sure that it will help you and inspire you as you look at little Jerusalem. You know, if you look at little Jerusalem and you color all the uh, Arabian nations around her, all the Arab nations and all the nations around her, if you color that, uh, let's say let's color it blue or yellow, whatever, and you put red for Israel, there'd be a little tiny dot right there, just a little tiny dot on the map. But God loves that little tiny dot, amen. God loves Israel, praise God. And so let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Zechariah chapter 12. I'm just going to read three verses, then we're going to, we will read the whole chapter before we're done tonight, but we'll be moving pretty quickly. It only has 14 verses. I would read all 14 of them starting out, but we're going to go to each one as we progress along tonight in, the, in our study. But verse 1, 2, and 3, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundations of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. When they shall be in the siege or siege both against Jerusalem and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the earth, all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. I want to use for a subject and I want to pull it out of this verse um, Verse 3, that God will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone. But in verse 2, he describes Jerusalem as a cup of trembling. So I'm going to use for a subject tonight, Jerusalem, a cup of trembling. May be seated. Someone would ask, what makes Jerusalem so special? Well, God makes Jerusalem so special. What makes my home so special? More special for me than you. Because that's where I live. That's where my things are. That's where my love is in my home. And you stop and think about it. When Jesus Christ came to planet Earth, that's God coming. God came to Israel, and he came to the world in the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, was God in flesh. And God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. So it was from Jerusalem that God shouted to the world, I love you. In fact, it was in the uh, Iraq, Iran area where the 
uh, Garden of Eden was, that area, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promised land. And when you stop and think about it, if you were God, and I'm so glad you're not, but if you were God and you came to earth as a human being, robed in flesh, and you gave your life a ransom, you died on the cross of Calvary, shed your blood, which that's what our creator did, that's what God did for us, would not you be completely thrilled about Jerusalem? If that's where you grew up, if that's where you walked the shores of Galilee, if that's where you walked the streets of Jerusalem, is that, don't you know that you've got fond memories of where you grew up? And God has fond memories of Israel and Jerusalem. Also that of Abraham and the promise that God made to Abraham. And so, Everybody, everybody asks the question, well, why is Jerusalem so special? And, and I want to just say some things because it's important that you understand this. We live in a world that they're not all anti-Jew, but they are anti-Israel. It's, it's almost like everybody wants to say, well, you know, Israel needs to take its cut. Well, how many cuts do you think it needs to take? It's just a little dot on the map now. And we'll be talking about the boundary markers and the things that have been moved down through the years uh, by presidents in our United States and by the UN. Um, they used to call, uh, the Jews called the UN the UN of nothing. But anyway, it's probably about true. Most of the decisions that the UN make or NATO makes concerning Israel, it's usually against Israel. And so uh, there's a reason for that. Most of the people sitting at that table is full of the devil. Amen? And there's a reason the world is against Christianity because most of the world is full of the devil. You either, you either have Jesus or you've got the devil. There's no in-between. Either Jesus is running, controlling your life, or unclean spirits are controlling and running your life. And so we're going to look at some things tonight uh, about Israel being a cup of trembling. Before I begin, we, we talked about in Jeremiah 32 about how Jeremiah was prophesying that Israel would go into Babylonian captivity. Remember that? And Jeremiah knew that Israel was going to be slaughtered, that the city was going to be slaughtered. That's what the book of Lamentations is all about, the city of Jerusalem being slaughtered. And Jeremiah is in prison, he was in and out, in and out of prison. And he wasn't, you know, he was in and, in and out of prison all the time because the kings were cuckoo in that day and God-haters. Jeremiah was a true prophet of God. And a nephew in the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah came and asked for Jeremiah to buy his field, buy his property. Jeremiah's thinking, well, why should I buy the property? We're going to go into Babylonian bondage. We're going to go... You know, Babylon's going to take over Israel, and we're going to be carried off. Why would I buy a piece of property? It won't be mine anyway, and I'll be dead by the time we get out of there because it was 70 years they would be in Babylonian captivity. And God spoke to Jeremiah and said, buy it, and let it be a sign to the nation of Israel that the land continues to belong to them. And so what's beautiful about all this is, is that Israel today is the only nation on planet earth 
that can prove the land belongs to them. They have the title. Not only do they have the promise from Abraham that God gave Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they have the title deed. Because after they came out of Babylonian captivity, the Jews, when they came out of Babylonian captivity, the first thing they started doing was buying up the land. They, buy the, they, they purchased the land. It was theirs, but they still bought it. With money, they bought the land back. And they bought the land all the way up into the, well, they're doing it even now. They're still buying the land. But during the time of uh, the late 1800s, they were still buying the land. I mean, the, the Jerusalem was a swamp land, just a barren land during that time. But yet the Jewish people kept buying the land, and they kept buying it and holding the deed. So they're the only ones that can really say to the Palestinians, it's ours. God gave it to us, and we even rebought it. It belongs to us. But see, they, want, they don't want to, when I say they, I'm talking about the Palestinians and the other Arabian nations around there. They don't want to acknowledge the fact that the land belongs to Israel. And it belongs to Israel for good reason. God gave it to them. For another reason, they bought it and they possessed the land because God led them to do so. Prophets are always despised. At least true prophets are despised. I'm afraid today we live in a land where false prophets, they're just puppets in the hands of people that give them money. You know, I used to think the people were puppets in the hands of the false prophets. That's not true. The people hold the strings to the false prophets because they know they can't say what they need to say or the people won't receive them. So to be men pleasers, they will prophesy error. But Jeremiah and Zechariah and the other prophets, Zerubbabel wasn't a prophet, he was a governor, but Haggai and all those prophets, they, they prophesied the truth. And it's important that we understand that the devil hates truth. The devil hates truth. Amen? And if you hate truth, or you deny truth, or, or you refuse to recognize truth, you're on the wrong side. You're not on the winning side, because eventually truth will win out. It may take a while, but truth will win out. Jesus Christ, when he came and was preaching in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, he declared that Zechariah was murdered in the second temple, in Zerubbabel's temple. There in Matthew 23, verse 35, Jesus Christ said, this Zechariah that we're preaching from was murdered between the altar. There in the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, which in Jesus' day, it was kind of, uh, kind of uh, ransomed or took over by King Herod. And they call it Herod's temple, but it's actually Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple is built. And that's the same temple that Zechariah was murdered in. Now, I said all that to say this. The devil, because Jesus Christ walked the streets of Jerusalem, and because Jesus Christ, you know, gave the truth and sent forth the message of the gospel around the world, and it, it started with Jesus. And because the Ark of the Covenant at one time was in Solomon's temple, 
And because God dwelled in Solomon's temple, at least that's where he promised to be there to hear their prayers and, and to see them. The devil wants to be there. He wants to go to where God sat. He wants to sit in the chair God sat in. He wants to do what God did. The devil wants to be God. And that's what the book of Revelation a lot is about. And that's what Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 is about. The devil wants to sit in the chair that God sat in, wants to be in the temple that God was in. The devil wants to. It's amazing uh, how people want to be in someone else's chair. Get in your chair, stay there until God moves you to another chair. Amen? I know that's your chair because when you walk in and somebody's got it, you go. And then you huff and puff across the church and sit down and say, well, we moved because somebody got our chair. Now, you laugh, but I just heard that a few weeks ago. And I laughed all the way back to the platform. I thought it was hilarious. But anyway, God is speaking and touching lives, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 3, and we read it just now. Jerusalem is a cup of trembling. Now, I want to begin by simply saying this. Um, Jerusalem has always been a place where the nations have always been frustrated over. Jerusalem has always been a place where the politicians didn't know what to do with. They didn't know how to handle. And God gives his credentials in the first verse of chapter 12 through Zechariah. God says, I stretched out. Thus saith the Lord, which stretch, stretches out the heavens and layeth the foundations of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. God gives his credentials. He said, I made the heavens and I made the earth and I made mankind. God is saying, I'm the creator. I can do what I'm about to say I'm doing. I can do what I'm saying I will do in chapter 12 through the Zechariah. Thus saith the Lord, Zechariah says, God can do this because God's big. God created the heavens. He stretched, stretched out the heavens. That word stretch, you want me to give you a little mind bender, a little mind thinker? I want you to think about this. A lot of people think the earth is, you know, 6,000 years old, maybe a little older. Others believe that it could be thousands and thousands and even hundreds of thousands of years old. Uh, but a lot of those that believe that we live on a young earth will tell you that when God created everything, he created it just in a small, small little ball, the earth, the solar system, the universe. And then when he created the stars and the heavens and the, all the life, he, he did this after he created them in a little ball. I don't know whether I'll get down there or back up, but anyway... And when he stretched out the heavens, he did this. He stretched it like a scroll out. So those who want to defend the 6,000-year young earth, they said, well, God just stretched it out, which made the light take hundreds and thousands, trillions of years to get to earth, but it's actually the same age as the earth because God stretched it out. Well, I don't know. I wasn't there. But one thing I know for sure, 
God created the heavens and the earth. That I know. Not only did he create the heavens and the earth, but God made mankind. He made everything. He made the foundations of the earth. The Bible says that he made man. I love this phrase, and you find it in Genesis 2, 7 as well, that he formeth the spirit of man within him. Genesis, Genesis 2, 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So God says, I'm big enough to do this. That's basically what he's saying in verse 1. This is my credential. I made it all. I made the foundation of the earth, and I made man, and I put the spirit in man. I gave man life. So I'm capable of doing what I'm about to do. And he said, I'm choosing, in verse 2, Jerusalem. And I'm going to choose Jerusalem to be a cup of trembling. Now, let's keep something in mind. It's a cup of trembling to all men. What do you think of a cup that's trembling? You think of either a really old person that's shaking because the cup's trembling, or you think a drunk. God is showing us that he will make Jerusalem a city that makes the nations intoxicated with insanity. They will come against Jerusalem with insanity. God's going to put insanity in their hearts, in their minds, and they are going to come against Jerusalem, and they're going to gather against Jerusalem to conquer the city. It says, round about, verse 2 says, when they shall be in siege, in other words, Jerusalem is bound, both, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Now, Someone says, well, I believe in replacement theology. Yeah, you got a hole in your head too. Say, so, well, you're not going to win me to Jesus by insulting me. Well, you're beyond help anyway. If you stop and think about this, if you're going to fight the scriptures. Did you know 10 times in this one chapter 12 of Zechariah, it says Jerusalem. It connects Judah with Jerusalem. 10 times the statement, Jerusalem. Now, think about what I'm saying. Replacement theology teaches that the church replaced Israel. That's replacement theology. They teach that Israel is nothing. That we live in a modern day time. Israel is nothing. That we're just going to go on and the church is Israel. The church is spiritual Israel. The church is it, and there's nothing else. That's replacement theology. But all the Old Testament prophets says, no, God has a promise to Israel forever. Even Jesus says, no, God is not finished with Israel. Even Jesus said Jerusalem would be the hot spot in the end time, because the Antichrist will sit in the temple and cause an abomination of desolation in the holy place. Even Jesus said the intensity and the judgment of God's wrath will come against that location around Israel. As all the nations of the world come around and put in bondage the city of Jerusalem. That's what this verse 2 is talking about. In siege. Jerusalem, all the nations come. Why? Because they're drunk with power. They're drunk with control. 
Have you ever met someone that likes to control somebody? You know, it just makes me angry when I see someone that they, they have a spirit of control. They want to control people. Well, the nations of the world has always had that spirit of control over Jerusalem. Really, I'm serious. And they kept that control. The Romans had it. Now, after the Romans... Uh, uh, empire disband, dismantled after World War II, the nations decided they would still control Israel. They would let her become a nation in 1948, but they're still going to control her, give her her boundaries. And that has went on president after president after president of the United States. We'll come to that. We'll come back to that in just a little bit because this is real important that we see this this problem that God shows about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, well, let me just, let me just uh, go right here. I've already established the fact the cup of trembling was probably drunkenness or poison that the nations will drink and be insane. If you don't believe in insanity, just look back the last two years. If you don't believe in crazy, just look at the politicians for a little bit. Amen? This world is drunken with, with nonsense. Drunken. Well, they'll be drunk against Jerusalem. And I want to first say Jerusalem is the center of the nations. Did you know Jerusalem, according to God, is ground zero? According to God, Jerusalem, Israel, is the navel of the world. According to God, Jerusalem is the center of all of planet earth and the center of the nations. According to God. Not according to you and I, not according to the politicians, not according to the nations, but according to God. Jerusalem is the center of all nations. Look at Ezekiel 5, 5. Chapter 5, verse 5. Ezekiel 5, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5 says, Thus said the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are round about her. Then he went on to say in the next verse, Her has really stirred me. Jerusalem has really moved me within my judgments. Now, that you know, God himself said Jerusalem is the center. God himself said Jerusalem is the center. Jesus Christ is the center of the world. He came to Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem, his ministry in Israel. And no matter what the world wants to think about it, God has a special spot in his heart for Jerusalem, for Israel. Now, does that make Israel any better than any other nation? Not at all, because Israel's far, far away from God right now. But it's still home, sweet home to Jesus when he walked the earth. And it's still a tender place for God, Israel. And God made a promise to Abraham that he would keep Israel. So Israel is the center of the nations. So watch Israel. Watch Israel. Now, notice in verse 3. That in that day, now in that day is mentioned seven times in chapter 12. 
In that day is mentioned 16 times in chapter 12, 13, and 14. In that day is not the day of the Lord. It is, it is the day of God's wrath. It's not, it's, it, it's just simply, in that day is the great tribulation. In that day is the judgment and the wrath of the day of the Lord. It's not the Lord's day. Let me say that. It is the day of the Lord, but it's not the Lord's day. The Lord's day is Sunday, and we expect you here this coming Sunday. That's the, that, the Lord's day. But the, the, the day of the Lord is when God has chosen a time to judge the world. The day of the Lord is, and it begins at the rapture of the church. It goes into the great tribulation, the wrath of God, and then it consummates at the end the judgments of the nations, and then the millennium. And there'll be a thousand year reign in the millennium. And that is the day of the Lord. And he uses the phrase that day, that day, that day, 16 times in the next three chapters. Seven times in this chapter 12. So we know that Zechariah is talking about the end time. He's talking about our day, in that day. And how many know we're living in that day, or at least on the verge of that day? It could begin any moment. And so that day, now notice verse 3, that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, all the burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, although all them that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Now let me just simply say some things that's real important. Those who cut Israel... God will cut in pieces. Those who cut Israel, God will cut in pieces. You say, what's that got to do with the burdensome stone, landmarker? And we know the stone is Jesus Christ. We know the stone that the builders rejected was Jesus Christ. But the stone here is the landmarker. It is the boundary. He said, I, he said, I, he said, will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people? And anyone, notice the rest of this verse, and all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. He's saying everyone that tries to move that stone is going to get cut up. The boundaries. Now, it's kind of like God said to Pharaoh, why did, why did God drown Pharaoh and his armies in the sea, the Red Sea? Because Pharaoh drowned God's children in the Nile. So God drowns Pharaoh in the Red Sea. Pharaoh makes God's people slaves. So God makes them slaves to sin. Pharaoh kills the firstborn. In the Nile, drowning him. So God kills the firstborn of Egypt. It's what God said to Abraham. I will bless you. I will bless them that bless you. I will curse them that curse you. God says, you bless Israel, I'll bless you. You curse Israel, I'll curse you. God says, well, like the little boy that said he went home after Sunday school, and his mom said, what did the teacher teach you on? He said, I, he said, the teacher taught if you draw a knife on God, he'll draw a knife on you. 
Maybe if he's preaching from the scripture, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. Well, basically, prophetically, that's true. God, if you cut the boundaries, God's going to cut you. Uh, I can't remember how many presidents I've seen, but there's quite a few. Um, you know, I'm getting up there in some age now, and I've seen from the beginning of uh, um, John F. Kennedy on. And so that's several presidents, every one of them. I think Kennedy was killed too quick to do much, but every one of those presidents, and I, and I appreciate what Harry Truman did, but every one of those presidents, including Donald Trump, have always set boundaries around Israel, has always cut its boundaries, its geographical boundaries. And God says, if you do that, I'm going to punish you. Plain vanilla, Israel doesn't need America. Israel's got God. Amen? And America needs God. That's just, I mean, just plain and simple, Israel has God. Now you say, but they don't live for God right now. But God's got his eye on them. And God's going to open his eyes to them. We'll see that in just a little bit. But notice it says in verse 3 that uh, when they try to lift that stone, he said, they that are bur- says, Jerusalem will be a burdensome stone for all the people, all that burden themselves. <laughs> Them that try to pick it up, they're going to get a hernia. With all shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered against it. The sad thing of it is, most of the world feels that Israel should comply to the land boundaries. And there's always a president that decides that Israel should give up a little bit more. A little bit more land, a little bit more. And that's what this stone's all about. God says all the nations will ultimately turn against Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be bound and under siege in um, hostile nations all around her. We're seeing that now, aren't we? Verse 4 through 5, verse 4 and 5. In that day, God will look again upon Israel. God is about to open his eyes again upon Israel. Look at verse 4 and 5. In that day, that's the great tribulation, the judgment of God, said the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment. I'll startle the horses and his rider with madness. There it is. Intoxicated, poisoned with the drinking of the cup of Israel. And I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. Now look, if the rider on the horse is intoxicated, the horse still will get the sucker home. Hear hear me. If the person on the horse is wounded, intoxicated, or out of their mind, the horse will still get them home. But God says, I'm going to make the horse blind. I mean, God is so cool. He's so hot too. 
He's an awesome God. He said, I will astonish. You say, do you believe in horsepower in the great tribulation? What do you think they call your V8 car? It has so many horsepowers. Uh, you, your vehicles have horsepower. Everything goes by horsepower. Amen? Some of you go by sewing machine power, your car. But a good V8 goes by several horsepowers. And the more, you know, you get you a nice Shelby Mustang, it's a lot of horses. 400 horsepower. 450 horsepower. That's a lot of horses. You don't even have to feed them, although it'd probably be cheaper today. But God says, I will... I will come against them, verse 5, and the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the, in the Lord of hosts, their God. In other words, the, 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 the um, governors are the leaders of Judah. So the leaders of Judah will take heart. They will be happy. They will be encouraged. And they will have boldness because the people will now, God is now focused upon Israel. Notice the phrase in verse 4. He says, and I, God says, and I, that's the middle of verse 4, and I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah. Right now, it appears that God has his eyes closed to Israel. God has pretty much had his eyes closed to, and I don't, I'm not saying that God walks around with his eyes closed or anything like that, but you know what I'm trying to say. They haven't had a king since before they were taken by Babylon. They, they don't have a king. They, their king is in heaven on the throne, going to return back one day, king of kings and lord of lords. But Israel hasn't had a king. Israel is just out there, a tourist attraction. But one day God will look upon Israel and focus on Israel, and when God's got you in his eyesight, you tend to be encouraged and the governors of Judah are encouraged because God now is looking favorably upon the nation Israel. Charges them up. Amen. Right now, uh, uh, God's not looking as far as the, you know, he hadn't done much with them. When's God going to look at Israel? I mean, when, God, when is God going to focus on Israel? When is God going to focus on Israel? Well, let me ask you now. What's he, let me ask you this. What's he focused on now? He's focused, on, he's focused on the church. Right now, he's focused on you and me. He's focused on the church. He's calling out a church. But once the church is caught up to meet Jesus in the air, then he will turn and focus on Jerusalem. And he will focus on Jerusalem under their siege, under their bondage. And he will begin to make the nations drunk because Israel or Jerusalem will become a cup of trembling and they'll drink of it. They'll be possessed with it, obsessed with the Jerusalem, obsessed with Israel. And they will gather against Israel and Israel will have a stir in their heart. The governors, the leaders of Israel have a stir in their heart and they will be bold and they'll resist what is coming against them. They'll resist the armies. Now notice it says in verse 6 to 14, and this is beautiful. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like an earth of fire among the wood. 
and like a torch of fire in the sheath. In other words, he's gonna, God says, I'm going to set the governors, the leaders, I'm going to set them on fire. I'm going to set their sword on fire. And they'll be like a torch, fire in their sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left hand. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in, the, in her own place, even in Jerusalem. About the end time, God's going to rejuvenate and refire and rekindle Jerusalem. That's what's coming. God's going to step in. And he's going to punish those that tried to punish Israel. He's going to bless those that, uh, he's going to bless them that bless Israel, curse them that curse Israel. God's going to come in and he's going to judge the nations according to the way they treat the nation of Israel during the great tribulation. Now, it says in verse 6, they shall devour all the people around about. That means they're hostile people that are against them right on the right and on the left. Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Verse 7, and the Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, and the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. Now, what's he saying in verse 7? He's saying God will save the little guy first. God will move upon the little guy first so that guys that think they're big, the house of David, won't be arrogant about it. They won't feel like, well, look what we did. God said, I'm going to use the little guy in the little tent. Use the little people. I'm going to stir them. And he says, um, that Jerusalem do not, they won't magnify themselves against, against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. I mean, no, David was a great warrior, a great fighter. He said the feeble will be great warriors like David, and the house of David shall be as God. Right there I want to shout as the angel of the Lord before them. Now, what does he mean when he says that David shall be as God? Well, you remember the four gospels? Jesus, thou son of David. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? That makes you want to shout. Right now, Israel's just a tourist attraction because of the church. Hello. I mean, I've not been exactly too popular right now in the preaching, but it's true. Israel's just a tourist attraction. But it says in verse 9, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. He's talking about the great tribulation. talking about the climax of, of Israel. Verse 10. Verse 10, you see another start. In that day the people will be saved. What's he referring to in that day the people will be saved? Look at verse 10. We're going to read verse 10 to 14, then we're going to wrap this up. And I want to share something with you that just really is astonishing. God is going to bring salvation to Jerusalem and Israel. How's he going to do it? He's going to do it through the fact that he shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. Look at verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. How many know a tourist city needs the grace of God? Israel is nothing right now. They need the grace of God. Not only do they need the grace of God, he said, I'm going to give them the spirit of grace and supplication. The word supplication means supply. 
material. I'm going to give them the supply. I'm going to give them the grace and the supply. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. He said, they will notice and recognize that I shed my blood for not just the church, but I shed my blood for Israel. He said, they'll look upon him whom they have pierced. What, what was pierced? His head was pierced with thorns. His hands was pierced with nails. His feet were pierced with nails. His side was pierced with a sword. He said, they will look upon him that was crucified, and they will cry in bitterness. Now, what kind of cry in bitterness will they have? Verse 11, in that day shall there be a great mourning, grieving in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadron in the valley of Megiddo. Well, what happened in the valley of Megiddo? What happened in the, 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 the time, the battle of Hadidmon, the valley of Megiddo? Well, the valley of Megiddo is the valley of Megiddo. I could stop here and preach because that's where one of the big battles is going to be at the end, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. But something happened in that valley of Megiddo that caused all of Israel to plunge into tears and crying and sobbing. You know what it was? One of Israel's greatest kings, Josiah, was killed in the valley of Megiddo. Josiah was one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. You can find it in 2 Kings 23, verse 29, 2 Chronicles 35, verse 20 through 27. What happened was King Josiah personally went around and tore down the, the pagan idol temples. He personally sought to turning to God. As a young king, Josiah, was in, they, he had the reputation. He didn't turn to the left, didn't turn to the right. He was a king of solid, powerful convictions. Well, a Pharaoh comes in the land and it begins a battle. This Pharaoh is called Pharaoh Necho. And Pharaoh Necho is going to come into battle near the territory of Jerusalem. You can read this in 2 Chronicles 35, verse 20 through 27. And Josiah is going to array and go to battle against this Pharaoh Necho. Well, according to 2 Chronicles, the Pharaoh Necho says, don't mess with me. I, what I'm doing, God's telling me to do, don't get in my business. But Josiah refused to not get in the business. He did get in the business, and in that battle, Josiah was killed. And all of Israel mourned. They cried, they mourned. By the way, Jeremiah cried and sobbed incredibly with great grief. In the book of Zechariah, he talks about that time in which Josiah was killed. You might spend some time to study that and look it up. Jeremiah cried and was sob sobbing, and he had cried unto the Lord with great tears and great sobbing because Josiah had been killed. Now, verse 12, 13, and 14 tells us how God's going to save Israel. 
Now, we got to remember the 13th chapter, two-thirds of Israel is killed. So there's only one-third of Israel left. So Israel's real small at the end of the Great Tribulation. There's only one-third left. Two-thirds have killed according to chapter 13 of Zechariah. Now, if you look at this, uh, how does God save a nation? Well, he saves a nation one soul at a time. That's how God saves a nation. He saves a nation one soul at a time. If we're going to see America saved, it will be saved by one soul at a time. A lot of people are going to have to be saved if America is ever going to be saved as a nation. Our solution isn't gathering around the flagpole. Our solution is gathering around lost sinners and telling them about how wonderful Jesus Christ is and getting them saved one by one, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the solution for our nation, people being saved. Will Israel be saved as a nation? Yes, it will be saved as a nation. But that doesn't mean that everybody is going to be saved because there's going to be two-thirds of Israel die in the Great Tribulation. But this is one of the most remarkable revivals that Israel will ever experience. And in fact, this revival in verse 12, 13, and 14 is probably going to be the greatest revival in all of God's time, in all, all of history of humanity, all the time. This is the greatest revival. Look at verse 12, 13, and 14. We'll wrap this up. Verse 12, and the land shall mourn. Every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives, the family of Shimei apart, and their wives, and all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. Who's going to be saved? Who's going to cry out to God? Who's going to turn their life to Christ? Who's going to turn to the Messiah? Every person on in Israel, every Jewish man, boy and girl, every wife, every husband, every leader, everyone in Israel will be born again. Changed by the power of God. We'll be saved. At the end of the Great Tribulation, it'll be a small number, one-third. But notice this. The land shall mourn every family apart. The family of the house of David. Notice the house of David and their wives. That's the leaders, the kings. Those are in the king lineage. They'll, they'll, they'll repent. Notice the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives. That's the prophets. Notice the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives. That's the ministers of the temple. Notice the family of the Shimei apart and their wives apart. That's the soldiers in the army. Shimei was a soldier. And all the soldiers in the army should repent and their wives. And all the families that remain, every family apart and their wives apart. That's pretty, pretty clear in verse 12, 13, and 14. It says pretty plain that everyone Everyone left when Jesus shows up will have a life change, will be born again, will be changed by the power of God, will be saved by the blood of the crucified one, their Messiah. 
Isn't that beautiful? So when Josiah was killed, Pharaoh Nico, there was a great crying in Megiddo. And when Jesus Christ shows up in the, va- in the valley of Megiddo or Armageddon, when he shows up in the valley of Jehoshaphat in the Megiddo, in the valley of Megiddo, they will look at him and they will break down just like they did when King Josiah died. The nation will be de- distraught and grieve and cry out because they will see the pierced hands. They will see Jesus who was crucified on the cross of Calvary and they will realize that they realize that they have missed their Messiah and they'll see the one in whom they have pierced and they'll cry out with great tears and great distraught grief out to God for forgiveness and they'll be saved. Chapter 12. Pretty awesome chapter. You could read chapter 12, which we did, and we could say, today, today, we're living in this day. Israel is surrounded and sieged. Israel can't do anything without the politicians sticking their nose in it. Israel's trying its best to get along. And all the politicians want to do is snip, snip, and move the stone and move the boundary markers. And God says, when they do that, they're going to be cut out. You know, President Trump, and I don't want to be political here, but I want to make a statement. President Trump did move the uh, our em- uh, uh, embassy to Jerusalem, which was a great move. But if you remember, if you were following politics, the ambassador for Israel made a statement not too long later that they were going to stick to the boundaries. They were not going to try to move the boundaries of Israel. They were going to stick to the previous, I think it was 1969 boundaries. I can't remember exactly what year it was. And um, I'm thinking, that wasn't pleasing to God. No precedent we've ever had has been pleasing to God when it comes to that. They always want Israel to compromise, to let go of their possession. Every one of them, at the, at the risk of, you know, at the cost of, of uh, at the price of peace, they want Israel to give up. But they don't want other people to give up. They don't want the other nations to give up. They want Israel to give up, to let go. And God says, that ain't right. And God's going to deal with that. And that's what this 12th chapter is about. God's going to deal with that. Amen? And so today, I want to say to everybody in this room, we are right here on the threshold of the Lord's return. And I'm so excited. We're in the book of Revelation on Sunday morning. We'll be in chapter 9. I was told we're going to have a lot of visitors coming Sunday morning. Here I am preaching about demons coming out of the middle of the earth. But anyway, wonderful. Amen. Couldn't they have picked a better time, you know, like three years sooner. (laughs) But we're going to be in that chapter 9 of Revelation Sunday morning. And, And I've got some things that I'll share with you that I believe will help you understand chapter 9 much, much, much better. 
You know, we've had a lot of prophecy preachers that's really confused the church over prophecy from everything from helicopters to airplanes to bombs to leaders. And Henry Kissinger's been the Antichrist 1,500 times. Is he even still alive? He is? What is he, 135? How old is Henry Kissinger? Well, I don't know, but it'd be old. No, Henry Kissinger's not the Antichrist. He's not. He said, well, who is he? I don't know. Whoever he is, I don't like him. Whoever he is, I'm not looking for him. I'm looking for Jesus. Stand with me. We'll give an invitation. We always give an invitation. Always give an invitation. He said, preacher, why do you always give an invitation? Well, that's real simple. At our church, at Ozark Full Gospel Church, we always give an invitation, and the answer is simple, because other churches don't. I'm not saying all churches don't, but I'm saying a great majority of churches in the land today don't give invitations. And I believe the altar is still a place of contact with the Lord. Amen. Those of you that study your Bible and been seeking the Lord, it would do you good to just go to the scriptures in Jeremiah where he cried over the death of Josiah. Do you good to study that in Lamentations. And it's also in Jeremiah where Jeremiah cried and wept where he couldn't weep anymore over the death of Josiah. Do you good to look at that. Do you good to read the scriptures in First, Second Kings and, and Second Chronicles about the, the, the death of Josiah. And then it will just bring alive the valley of Megiddo. It'll bless your heart. Altar's open. You come.